given to us the place and the time to understand the covenant that you made with Israel under the law. To understand the life of Moses, the principles involved as you led the children of Israel out of bondage through the desert and into the new land. Father, I pray tonight that as we finish this book, we might have that overall grasp of the meaning of it and the principles, those salient principles that are for our life. Help us, Lord, to comprehend and to rejoice in the truth, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. I've never met a perfect family, though I have seen families that, though they're not perfect, they really reflect togetherness and forgiveness and uh, the health that a family is to project. My family was far from perfect growing up. I had three older brothers. We got into a lot of trouble. We got into a lot of fights. We always didn't get along with our parents. There were times when we were angry at our father, bitter toward my dad, angry at my mother, all the things that probably normal families go through. But one of the things I am grateful for is the commitment that my parents had. This last week in Southern California, we had a family reunion. It's been five years since all of uh, my brothers along with my parents and our kids were all together. And uh, it was the first time that many of us were all together, including my mom's uh, brothers and sisters from all over the country. And it was a celebration of my parents' 50th wedding anniversary. And it was just so exciting to look at a couple who through thick and thin, many times of imperfection and problems, were together, stayed together, loved each other. And to see them now in their late 70s, being married for 50 years, was just an awesome testimony of commitment. The children of Israel at the very end of this book are called the house of Israel, or it's sort of seen as an extended family. God has been committed to them. They blow it big time throughout the entire book, throughout the entire wilderness wanderings. And yet, there is that commitment that God has to them. He makes a covenant. He makes a deal. He promises to bring them into a new land, to prosper them in the land, to give to them the land that God promised to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. During the celebration in California, one of the highlights is when my dad gave his little speech as the head of the family, and he said, the thing that I'm the most grateful for is this little gal sitting next to me. Speaking of my mom, she is a little gal. She's only five foot one inch. And of course, my mom blushed, and my dad gave her a ring to celebrate 50 years, but just said, you know, she's always been there. She's put up with me for 50 years. And there's times that he was very accurate with that, where she really did have to just put up with him. But he acknowledged that, and it was such a beautiful time. He said, I couldn't have made it without her. Moses recognizes that unless the Lord 
were to go with them, they wouldn't have made it. They wouldn't have made it this far. They couldn't on their own deliver themselves out of the bondage of Egypt, go through the desert, end up at Mount Sinai, and be where they are. And so Moses, at one point, a few chapters back, says, Lord, if your presence doesn't go with us, don't even take us from this place. If you don't go, I don't want to go. It's better to die here in the wilderness than go any further without you. I won't go unless you go. And Moses also recognized that not only could they have gotten this far, they couldn't have gotten this far without God, but they couldn't turn back at this point. They're not going to go back to Egypt, even though that crossed the mind of some of these people from time to time. Why didn't we stay in Egypt? Why don't you let us go back to Egypt? Never crossed Moses' mind. Moses knew they couldn't go back. God brought them there. God made a covenant with them. And now God was going to finish it and bring it through. Chapter 36 continues the building of the tabernacle, but we left, well, we finished chapter 35, but there's a few continuing thoughts that I want to tie together as we get into chapter 36. As we do, keep in mind that thought that is in Moses' mind. And that is that unless the Lord is with you, unless the Lord carries you through, you are doomed for failure. I wonder if there are some of us who, like Samson, in the same position where the Lord departed from Samson and he didn't know it. You're not sensing the power of God, the presence of God in your life. You, by breaking the covenant, so to speak, by rejecting the Lord, by sinning against God, have quenched the work of the Spirit in your life. And you're just sort of going on fumes. You're really not empowered by the Spirit of God. You don't experience the presence of God. Paul wrote to the Galatians and he said, Oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Having begun in the Spirit, do you think you're now going to be made perfect by the flesh? Now what is true for an individual is also true for a nation or a church, an organization. Sometimes we begin well, but we don't finish out well. Organizations have been guilty of this. Churches have been guilty of this all throughout church history. Beginning in the Spirit, a fresh move of the Spirit of God happens. But then pretty soon you get things in place. You organize. You have this big running machine and it's like, adios, Holy Spirit, we got it wired. Thanks a lot for the uh, coaching, but maybe you ought to go work with those people in China or India. They need you. We got it wired now. That is the beginning of the failure of any organization. Having begun in the Spirit, trying to be made perfect in the energy of the flesh, by the programs of the flesh, rather than waiting upon the Lord and seeing where He would lead us, saying, Lord, unless You take us from here, we don't want to go. Now, in chapter 35, just notice that in verses 4 through 9, an offering is taken. It's very voluntary. It is not the tithe that they were commanded to take from Israel, 10% of their income. This is a voluntary offering for the tabernacle. It was only to be taken by those whose hearts were stirred up. In fact, notice how that is repeated in many verses. Uh, in verse 5, Take from among you an offering to the Lord. Whoever is of a willing heart, let him bring it as an offering to the Lord. Gold, silver, bronze. Look over at verse 21. Then everyone who came whose heart was stirred and everyone whose spirit was willing 
they brought the Lord's offering for the work of the tabernacle of the meeting for all of its service for the holy garments. And then verse 22. They came, both men and women, as many as had a willing heart and brought earrings, nose rings, rings and necklaces, all jewelry of gold, that is, every man who offered an offering of gold unto the Lord. And then verse 29, same thing. The children of Israel brought a freewill offering to the Lord. All the men and women whose hearts were willing to bring material for all kinds of work which the Lord, by the hand of Moses, had commanded to be done. Their heart had to be stirred before the Lord wanted it. It was voluntary. What would stir up their heart? Well, I think it's pretty obvious. All that God had done from Egypt up to this point. They cried out in their affliction, God deliver us. God sent them a deliverer. God brought them with a strong hand through the Red Sea from the hand of Pharaoh. God gave them manna in the wilderness. God put up with their belly aching for many, many years. And looking back and recognizing the grace of God, their heart was stirred up. And they came together and offered their gifts as well as their service. I think that to me is true giving. When a person recognizes the grace of God, he's not pressured into it. The only pressure comes from his own heart. I love the Lord. I want to give to the Lord what God has given to me. It all belongs to Him anyway. My life belongs to Him. Every bit of my income belongs to Him, not just 10%, but all of it. And so, with a willing heart, because we recognize how good God has been, we give willingly. Chuck Colson, in his recent book, cited a Gallup poll. He said that in the United States of America, the Gallup organization has found that nearly, it's reported at least, nearly half of America goes to church regularly. But that Gallup saw that there's about 6% that he calls truly committed Christians. Out of the 50% of the public that goes to church, there's about 6% that's truly committed. Their heart's stirred up. They're really into it. It's not just a ritual. It's not just an event once a week. Their heart's in it. Their heart's into God. He noted that 40% of those who were polled say that God is the most important thing in their life. Yet, Gallup started talking about what they give. He said, those that make between fifty dollars and $75,000 a year give 1% of their income to churches, charity, and other organizations combined, yet spend 12% on individual pursuits of pleasure. Now, I have never been one to hanker people for money, and I never will. I think it's between you and God. If God stirs up your heart, fine. I think God is capable of laying on the hearts of people to give. So we have agape boxes strewn throughout the church. As God lays down in your heart, give. Give as unto the Lord. Give with a joyful heart. If you don't have a joyful heart, keep it. If God lays it on your heart, fine. Now I've been told, you ought to preach more on tithing. And I know that if I do, the income will go up. But I like to lay the emphasis 
where God lays the emphasis. And as you teach through the Bible and they talk about money, we'll talk about it. As the Bible talks about the family, we'll talk about it. As the Bible talks about whatever, we'll talk about it. The emphasis then is a true biblical emphasis, not my own. I never want to be charged for begging people for money because I don't see God doing it. I see God is capable to lay it on the hearts of His people. Yeah, but you got to tell them to give. If there were more funds, the work of God could carry on. Again, I think God is big enough to take care of His business. I've watched Him do it. And Moses was willing to let the people know what was happening and by their own volition, when they had a willing heart, as it says in 2 Corinthians, we don't give grudgingly nor of necessity. God loves a cheerful giver. I think the pressure must never be an external pressure, always an internal pressure. Your heart is stirred. Rather than, I feel so guilty. They keep asking for money every time I turn on that station, every time I turn on that preacher. I think one of the blots, one of the dark spots throughout church history that they have been reproached for, and many times rightfully so, is their hankering for money. Ask the average unbeliever to describe Christianity. The one thing that they'll have a bone to pick with, they're always asking for money. And so people say, give till it hurts. Hey, if it hurts you that much. Well, I can't afford to give, some people say. The way I look at it, I can't afford not to. And I sort of followed the biblical pattern as my first fruits belong to the Lord. The first off the top, the first check written. Lord, it's yours. It belongs to you. The children of Israel gave with a willing heart. What's awesome is in chapter 36, they give more than enough. And Bezalel, verse 1, and Aholiab, and every gifted artisan in whom the Lord had put wisdom and understanding to know how to do all manner of work for the service of the sanctuary shall do according to all that the Lord commanded. Now, the rest of this book, and we're not going to cover every verse because it's a repetition of what went before. We'll just highlight some things. But in the rest of these chapters, they are simply doing what God commanded in the other part of the book to do. They finish the tabernacle. They build it. These guys get together. They're gifted by God. God uses their talents and the gifts that He's given them to do the work of the Lord. The Holy Spirit uses it. And Moses called Bezalel and Aholiab and every gifted artisan, again, notice this, in whose heart the Lord had put wisdom everyone whose heart was stirred to come and do the work. And they received from Moses all the offering which the children of Israel had brought for the work of the service of making the sanctuary. So they continued bringing to him freewill offerings every morning. Not only was the offering to be given by those whose hearts were stirred up to give, but also the work was to be done by those whose hearts were stirred up to do the work. Again, this is true service. When somebody's heart is in it. I'm asked often, make more announcements about the needs in the church. Because, Skip, if you give the announcement, people will respond. And I always hesitate in doing it. And I want to do it in such a way that a person's heart is stirred rather than, 
boy, he's mentioning that children's ministry again. I better get over there and work. I look at it this way, very simply. There are needs. There are gifted people. You match the needs with the gifted people as God lays it on your heart, the work will get done. If God doesn't lay it on your heart, there will be no children's ministry or this ministry or that ministry. Because I'm not going to be the one to start something and push you through it. God's got to be the one to do it. Whatever you strive to attain, you have to strive to maintain it. And so the artisans of the tabernacle came as the Lord stirred up their hearts. To them it wasn't a job. They weren't watching the clock. They were doing it with a sincere heart as unto the Lord. They had been slaves in Egypt. They knew what it was like to be forced into something. Now it was purely voluntary. And though they had been slaves, they didn't see it as slavery. They saw it as something that was awesome to be a part of. I love to see that kind of enthusiasm. I have seen so much in Christian work where a person has the attitude, the right heart to get out and fill in some gap, work in some capacity, work in some area. They're there. They volunteer. They just, from a pure heart, minister as unto the Lord. Then it seems sometimes that when you start paying that person, putting them on staff, they start losing that spark of enthusiasm. It's a job to them. I have to be there. I have to do that. And it's better for them just to go and replace them with people whose hearts are stirred up to do the work of the Lord. This happens in many areas of life. The guy who tinkers around with cars, he thinks, oh man, this is fun. I love getting my hands dirty, working with pistons and rings and tie rods and, and, and on and on. It, it's awesome. I'd love to do this for a living. So he gets his own shop. He does it for a living. Soon, everybody in town says, where's my car? Get it done by Tuesday. And, I hate this job. That which once was a joy has become a drudgery to him. It's always good and necessary to have the right attitude in doing the work of the Lord. All the craftsmen, verse 4, who were doing all the work of the sanctuary came each from doing the work that he was doing. Each from the work that he was doing. And they spoke to Moses saying, The people bring much more than enough for the service of the work which the Lord has commanded us to do. So Moses gave a commandment. And they caused it to be proclaimed throughout the camp, saying, Let neither man nor woman do any more work for the offering of the sanctuary. And the people were restrained from bringing. For all the material they had was sufficient for all the work to be done. Indeed, too much. Now this is the only place I know of in the Scripture where the offering was so much that the leaders had to say, Please, stop. The work of the Lord's finished. Now it's estimated that it would cost over $5 million to have built the tabernacle if you were to build it today. Cost of the gold, the materials, the craftsmanship, uh, and so forth. Five million bucks. Now here's slaves who never had anything of their own, who never owned anything in and of themselves, and they're willing to give the spoils that they have taken from the Egyptians and not have a tight fist and hold on to it. So the leaders had to stand up and go, Psh, enough, no more work, no more offering, take it home. That's awesome. You know, you don't have to support God. I love that about God. God isn't homeless. 
He's not out as a pauper with his hat out. Please support me. I'm broke. It's God who supports us. And it's a pleasure, it's a privilege to be a part of His work. But God is not broke. Then all the gifted artisans among them who worked on the tabernacle made tent curtains woven of fine linen thread, blue and purple scarlet yarn with artistic designs of cherubim, and they made them. These are the linen walls. Trying to describe them. Linen curtains that were for the outside of the court. Okay? The court, as you remember, to refresh your memory, if you're looking at the tabernacle, if you were walking up to it, you'd see a wall 75 feet wide, a gate 30 feet wide, and it was 150 feet long. Now, this building, from the very back of the foyer where the drywall has been taped over to where the dove is, is 160 feet. So you take 10 feet off that, you have the dimension of the length of the tabernacle curtains, the outer court. 150 feet long, 75 feet wide. This is 120 feet wide, so you have to come in a bit. And that's the dimension of the tabernacle cord. These are the linens and the curtains that were made. The sockets were made and all the things that we read about already, chapter after chapter. And in verse 30, or chapter 37, Then Bezaleel made the ark of acacia wood. Two and a half cubits was its length, a cubit and a half its width, a cubit and a half its height. He overlaid it with pure gold inside and outside and made a molding of gold all around it, cast the four rings, and we've also read about that. So create a visual picture in your mind of what it looked like. Though we've done it before, do it again. 75 feet wide, 150 feet deep. That was the court. In the center, or in the very beginning of the entering of that court, the front was an altar of bronze, which was for the sacrificing of animals to atone for their sins. Then toward the back was the tabernacle proper, which was 15 feet wide by 45 feet deep, divided into two rooms. Starting from the very back was the Holy of Holies, and inside of it was the Ark of the Covenant. That's what we're reading about here. The Ark of the Covenant was made. Then the articles were made by these artisans uh, for the holy uh, place. Um, The table of showbread is mentioned, the golden lampstand, the altar of incense, and the anointing oil. And then chapter 38. Boy, we're really going through this, aren't we? He made the altar of burnt offering of acacia wood. Five cubits was its length, five cubits its width. It was square and its height was three cubits. He made the horns... On its four corners, the horns were of one piece with it, and he overlaid it with bronze. He made the utensils for the altar, the pans, the shovels, the basins, the forks, and the fire pans. All of its utensils he made of bronze. The most prominent feature that you would notice if you lived in those days and saw this structure was this huge bronze altar. It was the thing that stood out. It was the only thing that was visible as far as an altar or a utensil. Because the only way to approach God was through the sacrifice of an innocent victim. An animal had to die. You would bring an animal to the court. There would be a priest who would meet you. You'd lay your hands on that animal. The animal would have its throat slit. It would be sacrificed upon that altar. And at that point, you have no more. You can't go any further. You have to turn back and let the priest carry on the rest of the ministry for you. 
he would have to wash his hands in a laver or in a basin that had, there was no specifications that were given. It was unspecified in dimension. It was made out of bronze. He'd wash his hands before he could go attend the holy place itself. The laver is mentioned in verse 8. He made the laver of bronze and its base of bronze from the bronze mirrors of the serving women who assembled at the door of the tabernacle of meeting. Guys, don't be too hard on your wives saying, you know, I wish we lived in the good old days and they didn't have mirrors. They had mirrors as far back as archaeologists can turn a spade. They took polished brass. Though it wasn't as shiny as a mirror today, they would polish it and the the women back in those days had mirrors. Also, we ought to give credit to women in the building of the tabernacle. It wasn't all a male-dominated, male-oriented job. People accuse the Bible of being so one-sided. It's such a patriarchal society. Women, yes, in many places, women were not esteemed, but in the building of the tabernacle, there were women who were craftswomen, who sewed, who brought gifts, who worked in design, and they gave what they could to the tabernacle. And the Bible exalts and appreciates the place of women throughout. Jesus had women besides men who followed him as disciples, who served him. The Bible talks about deaconesses as well as deacons in the church. Uh, And prophetesses, the four daughters of Philip, prophesied and were given mention in the New Testament. Then he made the court on the south side. The hangings of the court were woven of fine linen, a hundred cubits long. And then we get to chapter 39. I say, why aren't you reading all of chapter 38? Well, we've read it. It simply says everything that God commanded Moses to do, they did it, and it's all itemized. Chapter 39 is the making of the garments for the priesthood. Of the blue and purple and scarlet thread, they made garments of ministry. For the ministering in the holy place and made the holy garments for Aaron as the Lord had commanded Moses. During the theocracy, while there was a tabernacle and a temple, the priests were different from the rest of the people and they wore clothes of ministry that distinguished them from the rest of the people. Now, in the New Testament, we don't see that. In fact, in the New Testament, ministers are called servants. And as you can tell, I don't really go in for robes or collars or things that would say, oh, look at him, he's a minister. It's better to tell by the lifestyle and by the Word of God that a person is a minister rather than by the clothes, I believe. Now, I'm not trying to get down on that. I think, hey, if you're into that wearing the collar and wearing the robes, go for it. I'm not. That's just not who I am. And I thank God that I'm not required to do so by the Bible. I just couldn't get into it. I like T-shirts and jeans and like to wear ties on Sunday morning and sometimes not, but just whatever you feel like. And that's one of the things I appreciate about this fellowship. Just look around. Nobody feels obligated to wear a three-piece suit. Who invented those things anyway? They're like torture chambers. Just wear whatever you're into, as long as it's modest. But the garments for the high priest, garments for ministry, 
for ministering in the holy place and made the holy garments for Aaron, who is the high priest, as the Lord commanded Moses. Now I want you to notice a recurring phrase that we just read, as the Lord commanded Moses. That's the emphasis of the rest of this book. Uh, Look at verse 5. And the intricately woven band of his ephod that was on it was of the same workmanship, woven of gold and blue and purple, scarlet thread, fine linen thread, as the Lord had commanded Moses. Verse 7. Put them on the shoulders of the ephod, that they should be stones for a memorial for the sons of Israel, as the Lord had commanded Moses. And verse 21. And they bound the breastplate by means of its rings to the rings of the ephod with the blue cord, so that it would be above the intricately woven band of the ephod, And the breastplate would not come loose from the ephod as the Lord had commanded Moses. In verse 26, bell and pomegranate, a bell and a pomegranate all around the hem of the robe to minister in it as the Lord had commanded Moses. And again in verse 29, and a sash of fine linen and blue and purple and scarlet thread woven as the Lord had commanded Moses. In verse 31, and they tied it to a blue cord to fasten it above on the turban as the Lord had commanded Moses. Now here's the point. There's a lot of things about Israel that we should not follow. There are a lot of examples that are bad examples. 1 Corinthians 10 lists all of the things you should not do as the children of Israel did. We should not lust as they lusted after evil things. We should not be into idolatry as they we're idol worshipers. There's a lot of things we shouldn't do, but there are some things that they did that we should emulate. They were thorough. They were detailed. And on certain bright occasions in their history, they followed through in obedience to the nth degree. This is what God commanded Moses. This is what was done. Now, before we move on to our last chapter, since look at how far we've gotten tonight. Isn't that awesome? This is a first, believe me, in this going through the Bible. There are eight articles that the high priest wore. We've gone through them. We've itemized them. We've shown you how they fit together. We've given you videos on it. Eight articles. Four of the articles were special articles only for the high priest. Four of the articles were not peculiar to the high priest, but it's what all of the priests wore when they attended to the holy articles of the Lord in the holy place. There was the ephod that the priest wore. It was tied together at the shoulders with gold bands and two stones. On each stone was engraved six of the tribes of Israel, the names of the six tribes on one, name of six other tribes on the other, so that he would bear in his strength or on his shoulders the names of Israel before the Lord. He was to wear a breastplate, which was like a sanctified vest. Uh... The breastplate was uh, tied to this vest. It had 12 stones, four rows of three stones, one representing each, the tribes of Israel. There was also a pocket attached. And in this pocket was two stones, or were two stones, the Urim and the Thummim, which were used to decipher the will of God in very unique situations. Then besides that, the high priest on his robe had bells and pomegranates all the way around, golden bells so that when he went in, to the holy place or holy of holies, the people outside could hear the bells ringing. And that was always a good sign. It was a bad sign if they couldn't hear the bells ringing. It meant that God had killed them 
He hadn't followed the prescription for entering into the presence of God either by making a sacrifice for himself or uh, wearing the clothes the way God had told him to wear them. So the bells indicated that the ministry was going on on behalf of the people before the Lord. Then he wore on his head a gold crown or a mitre that said, Holiness to the Lord. These are the four items that were different from the articles of the priests. The thing about the high priest is that he wore these things except on one day, Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. On the Day of Atonement, he took off the garments for beauty and for glory, as they were called, these four peculiar items, and dressed like a regular priest. Those items of beauty were shed as he went in with blood to sprinkle the Ark of the Covenant and the mercy seat for the sins of the people. Very descriptive of our high priest who being in the form of God thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but he emptied himself and he made himself of no reputation and took on the form of a servant and being found as a servant or as a man, humbled himself even to the death of the cross. So there is a parallel that we see between the high priest and Jesus Christ, our high priest. And then beginning in verse 32, all the work of the tabernacle of the tent of the meeting was finished. And the children of Israel did according to all that the Lord had commanded Moses, so they did. They brought the tabernacle to Moses, the tent, all of its furnishings, clasps, boards, bars, pillars, sockets, and all the things that are again itemized. In verse 43, Moses looked over all the work, and indeed they had done it. As the Lord had commanded, so they had done it. And Moses blessed them. He gave a benediction, no doubt a benediction or a blessing because they had given freely as their hearts were stirred to give uh, of their items and of their work unto the Lord. As Jesus Christ will do to you one day. You'll stand before God. He'll look over all your life, over all your work. He'll know the motivation for which you did it. If you did it to be seen by men, no reward. If you did it solely for His glory, you'll get a reward. He'll be able to decipher that. And you'll be able to stand before Him and hear the words from Jesus Christ, Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your Lord. And so that's why First John says, we'll be confident at His coming as, he, as we stand before Him and He blesses us. And then chapter 40, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, on the first day of the first month you shall set up the tabernacle of the tent of the meeting. Interesting. One year after Passover, one year after leaving Egypt, going through the Red Sea, the night that the lamb was shed, a year later, nine months after being encamped at Sinai, the tabernacle was finished. And on the anniversary, the anniversary of redemption, the tabernacle was set up. I love the way God keeps His calendar. His year is a spiritual year. The children of Israel began their year in the month of redemption. The first month was the month that held the Passover to the children of Israel. They were redeemed from Egypt. It was their spiritual birthday. If I were to ask some of you how old you are, you'd have different answers physically and different answers spiritually. I had a woman come up to me and and I said, how old are you? And she said, let me tell you my spiritual birthday. It's safer. You might be 40 years old, but only four years old in the Lord. That's when life really began. And as Passover began the year for the children of Israel, our redemption, 
our salvation in Christ begins our life. You shall put it in the ark of the testimony and partition off the ark with the veil. You shall bring in the table and arrange the things that are to be set in order on it. And you shall bring in the lampstand and light its lamps. You shall also set the altar of gold for the incense before the ark of the testimony and put up the screen for the door of the tabernacle. You shall set the altar of burnt offering before the door of the tabernacle of the tent of meeting. And you shall set the laver between the tabernacle of meeting and the altar and put water in it. You shall set up the court all around. You shall hang the screen at the court gate. You shall take the anointing oil and anoint the tabernacle and all that is in it. You shall hollow it and all of its utensils and it shall be holy. You shall anoint the altar of the burnt offering and all of its utensils and sanctify the altar. The altar shall be most holy. And you shall anoint the laver and its base and sanctify it. And you shall bring Aaron and his sons to the door of the tabernacle of meeting and wash them with water. You shall put the holy garments on Aaron and anoint him and sanctify him that he may minister to me as a priest. And you shall bring his sons and clothe them with the tunics. You shall anoint them as you anointed their father, that they may minister to me as priests, for their anointing shall surely be an everlasting priesthood throughout their generations. Then Moses, thus Moses did according to all that the Lord had commanded him, so he did. And it came to pass in the first month of the second year, on the first day of the month, that the tabernacle was raised up. And Moses raised up the tabernacle, fastened its sockets, set up its boards, put in its bars, raised up its pillars, spread out the tent over the tabernacle and put the covering of the tent on top of it as the Lord had commanded Moses. He took the testimony, that's the Ten Commandments, inscribed on stone, put them into the ark, inserted the poles to the rings of the ark, and put the mercy seat on top of the ark. And he brought the ark into the tabernacle, hung up the veil of the covering, and partitioned off the ark of testimony as the Lord had commanded Moses. He put the table in the tabernacle of meeting on the north side of the tabernacle outside the veil. And he set the bread in order upon it before the Lord as the Lord commanded Moses. Now I hope that you're able to picture how these articles looked from us bringing them out several weeks ago and we did and we showed you the dimensions, how we replicated them and spray painted them with gold paint to give you an idea of what they look like. I hope you can see them in your mind as we go through this. He put the lampstand in the tabernacle of meeting across from the table on the south side of the tabernacle. He lit the lamps before the Lord as the Lord had commanded Moses. He put the gold altar in the tabernacle of meeting in front of the veil. So if we were to set it up tonight, the whole thing would have the opening facing east. You'd come from east to west You'd walk through, if you were a priest, through the first veil, the first opening in that tent structure, which is toward the back of the court, and you would now be in the holy place. To the north or on your right-hand side, you see a table with showbread on it. To your left or on the south side would be that huge golden lampstand, the menorah. Right in front of you, where the veil is that separates the holy place from the holy of holies, is that small altar of incense where the priest would offer a pinch of incense representing the prayers of the people. Then that veil separated between the holy place and holy of holies. Only the high priest could go in once a year, Yom Kippur. He would go in and on the other side of the veil was the Ark of the Covenant with the spread wings of the cherubim 
the solid gold top mercy seat and the Ten Commandments within it. That's how it was set up, directly on the other side of that veil. That veil was kept intact as the children of Israel moved from place to place, from Sinai to Israel, encamped at Shiloh, later on moved it to Jerusalem. And even when they built the temple, that veil separated until what time? You know it, the crucifixion. When Jesus died, the veil of the temple was ripped in two from top to bottom, signifying that now there's not all these compartments, there's not all these restrictions. We can have fellowship with God through the blood of His Son, the Lamb of God, that once and for all takes away the sins of the world. And He put the gold altar, verse 26, in the tabernacle of meeting in front of the veil. He burned sweet incense on it as the Lord had commanded Moses. He hung up the screen at the door of the tabernacle. And he put the altar of burnt offering before the door of the tabernacle of the tent of meeting and offered upon it the burnt offering and the grain offering as the Lord had commanded Moses. And he set the laver between the tabernacle of meeting and the altar and put water there for washing. And Moses, Aaron, and his sons washed their hands and their feet with water from it. When they went into the tabernacle of meeting and when they came near the altar, they washed as the Lord had commanded Moses. And he raised up all the court all around the tabernacle and the altar and hung up the screen of the court gate. So Moses finished the work. Then the cloud covered the tabernacle of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tabernacle of meeting because the cloud rested above it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. When the cloud was taken up from above the tabernacle, the children of Israel went onward in all their journeys. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not journey till the day that it was taken up. God didn't give them, give them an agenda. He didn't give them a calendar and say, okay, next week we're going to split. That thing would just start moving. And they had to always be watching, always be ready to see where God would move them. And if God decided that, oh, we'll camp here for a while. That's where they stayed. It was solely moving as God would move them. For the cloud of the Lord was above the tabernacle by day and fire was over it by night. Oh, imagine what that must have looked like. In the sight of all of the house of Israel throughout their journeys. So now... The tabernacle is at the center of the two and a half million people that are camped around it. Signifying that God is to be at the center of the nation. They are to be a theocentric people. Very much unlike nations today that are anthropocentric. Centered around man, his accomplishments, his agenda. They were to all center around the Lord. And the glory of the Lord filled that place. Now, Moses could instruct the tabernacle to be made. The people could come and offer their money and their gold, their silver, their mirrors, their work. They could do all those things, but only God could fill that place with His glory. They couldn't manufacture that. God had to show up and bless that place with His presence. And I think it's an awesome way to end this book. It began in the brickyards of Egypt. It ends with the presence of God with His people. God came through. God said, I have heard the groanings. I have seen their affliction. And I am come down to deliver. 
notwithstanding their grumbling, their complaining, their disobedience, their idolatry, all of their failures, by the grace of God, God is dwelling with His people. The grace of God is present in the Old Testament, even during the law. Even though it's fully shown in Jesus Christ, it was only by God's grace that God hung around these people so long. I mean, even Moses, he just said, I've had enough of them. And testing Moses, God said, hey, step back. I'll wipe these people out. I'll start a new nation with you. But by God's grace, they end with the glory of the Lord filling the tabernacle. And it says it was with the house of Israel throughout their generations. Um, I'd like to close. I've written down at the end of this chapter several different ways that Moses is a type of Jesus Christ. I think you know what I mean by type. He's a foreshadow. He is a depiction in the Old Testament of the ministry of Jesus Christ in the New. Arthur W. Pink has outlined about 75 types, and uh, some of them I didn't agree with, and some of them I thought would just ramble on and on. So um, I'll just give you 12 of them. Moses was born, and when he was born, Israel was under the dominion of a foreign, hostile, Gentile power. They were under bondage. When Jesus was born, Israel was also under the bondage of Rome, under foreign dominion, and really slaves of that foreign power. Secondly, when Moses was an infant, his life was in danger. For the Pharaoh gave a commandment that all of the babies, all of the males, be drowned in the Nile River. When Jesus Christ was born, another king, Herod, commanded that all the male children in Bethlehem two years and under be killed. Thirdly, Moses spent his childhood in Egypt. Where did Jesus spend his childhood? In Egypt. As the angel came to Joseph and said, take the child and his mother, go to Egypt and flee, and I'll tell you when to come back. Fourthly, Moses, when he came of age, had compassion upon the children of Israel, wanting to identify with them, seeing that he was a Hebrew, seeing that they were under bondage, had compassion and was moved in his heart for the children of Israel. It is remarked of Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew, when Jesus saw the crowds, the people of Israel, he was moved with compassion. He saw them as sheep having no shepherd. Uh, Fifthly, Moses emptied himself of all of his power and all of his wealth in Egypt to become likened to his brethren, to become their deliverer. Again, a picture of Jesus, who being in very nature God, emptied himself, became a servant, and taking on the form of a servant, was obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Uh, Six, Moses was rejected at first by Israel. Remember, Moses came the first time and said, I'm your deliverer. And they said, who made you a ruler over us? Stephen makes this analogy in Acts chapter 7. Of Jesus, it is said, he came into his own and his own received him not. And in, I think, Luke chapter 19, the people of Israel say the same thing. We will not have this man rule over us. The same sentiment that they gave to Moses. Number seven, Moses journeyed among the Gentiles when he went to Midian, and he even sat by a well, as Jesus, during his ministry, went to Samaria and sat by a well. 
and came out and had a message for that Gentile woman and other Gentiles as well. Number eight, Moses was a shepherd. Jesus calls himself the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. Next, number nine, Moses appointed 70 rulers to serve with him. Jesus in Matthew's gospel sent out 70 around the Lake of Galilee to be his representatives. Moses sent out 12 spies that were selected, one from each tribe. Jesus chose and sent out 12 disciples. 11, Moses erected a tabernacle. And it says in the Gospel of John that the Word became flesh, and literally in the Greek, and tabernacled among us. And we beheld His glory, the glory of the only Son of the Father. And then finally, in number 12, in verse 33, Moses finished the work. And Jesus said, I have finished the work that thou gavest me to do. So we see many parallels of Moses to Jesus Christ. I thought, however, the best place to end this is uh, in Psalm 84. And we'll close our study tonight. I'm having you turn here. Because this was written by one of the sons of Korah who served in the tabernacle. And this was sung by the children of Israel. This is how they thought about this structure. How lovely is your tabernacle, O Lord of hosts. My soul longs, yes, even faints, for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh cry out for the living God. Even the sparrow has found a home and the swallow a nest for herself. Where she may lay her young, even your altars, O Lord of hosts, my King and my God, Blessed are those who dwell in your house. They will still be praising you. Blessed is the man whose strength is in you, whose heart is set on pilgrimage. As they pass through the valley of Baca, the dry valley, they make it a spring. The rain also covers it with pools. They go from strength to strength. Every one of them appears before God in Zion. O Lord God of hosts, hear my prayer. Give ear, O God of Jacob. O God, behold our shield and look upon the face of your anointed. For a day in your courts is better than a thousand. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than to dwell in the tents of wickedness. For the Lord God is a sun and a shield. The Lord will give grace and glory. No good thing will he withhold from those who walk uprightly. O Lord of hosts, blessed is the man who trusts in you. The tabernacle was not man's plan. It was by a divine pattern that this thing was built. You see, they couldn't decide how they wanted to approach God. God would not allow somebody to say, well, you know, I disagree with this whole Jewish deal. Not into this tabernacle, this sacrifice thing. I think God is more benevolent, beneficent than that. I'll come on my own. I'll just go walking right through the courts and just start hanging out with God, sit on the mercy seat. You couldn't do that. God had to be approached through this structure, through the covenant that God made with Israel. That's how the gospel is. The gospel is good news, but in many ways it's restrictive. You can't come any way you want to. The gospel is not man-made any more than the tabernacle was man-made. It's God-given. I hear a lot of people today talk about the many roads that there are to God. Well, not to the true and living God. There might be many roads to many other false gods. 
But God has prescribed the way and opened up the way to all men through His Son, Jesus Christ. That's the gospel. The death, the burial, and the resurrection of His Son. No other way. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me, Jesus said. The gospel couldn't be man-made. No person in his right mind would make up something like that. Something that condemns men apart from the atoning blood of Jesus Christ. Something that destroys men's self-esteem first before it builds it up in Christ. I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. It's not man-made, it's God-made. God at the center of His people. Even as God wants to be at the center of your life, that's what the tabernacle is all about. God communing with His people. The nation centered around God. Is your life centered around God? Is God a part of your life? Or is the tabernacle in the midst of your life? Do you have a place where you meet with God? You say, I'd like to meet with God. How can I meet with Him? Well, you first have to go to that bronze altar, figuratively speaking, where sacrifice has to be made. That's the cross of Jesus Christ. When the blood is shed, which it already has been on Calvary, then access is made available into the very presence of God for you. That's the only way you can come. God wants to dwell at the center of your life. As we close tonight's study, I want to make mention of an opportunity that's coming up in 95. I mentioned it before. In uh, April, or April-May, I forget it which month or if it's at the tail end, the beginning of the other. I think it's the beginning of May. We're taking a group with us to Israel. First, though, we're going to land in Cairo, Egypt, go up to the museum by the pyramids and check out the pyramids in Giza, take a bus across Sinai and look at the route that the children of Israel took that you have read about in the last several weeks and months in Exodus. We'll end up at Mount Sinai. At Mount Sinai, for those who are really into it, we'll get up about 2.30, 3.30 in the morning. 3.30 in the morning. Yeah, 3.30 in the morning. It's a two-hour walk up Mount Sinai. It's a steep mountain. And if you're really into it, you'll climb Mount Sinai and we'll see the sun rise together over the horizon, getting the same kind of a view that Moses got. Then we'll climb down, have breakfast, take the bus to Elat, which is the tip of the Red Sea, spend a day there, scuba dive, snorkel, whatever you're into, and then on to Jerusalem. And you'll see where the tabernacle was pitched and then the temple was built. And we'll take you all through that. And with the, the uh, model of the temple built by the Temple Institute, we'll show you it all. We'll show you Jerusalem, the Dead Sea, and then we'll take you up through the Jordan Valley to the area around the Sea of Galilee, Capernaum and the Golan Heights and all the area that Jesus headquartered his three-and-a-half-year ministry and then on down the coast through Megiddo and Haifa and down the coast to Caesarea. And we're calling it from Exodus to Acts. As the children of Israel were taken from Egypt into the Promised Land and we end up at Caesarea where Paul took a ship and sailed to Rome and the Gospel went all over the world. So... We're going to kind of cover it all in two and a half weeks or so. And uh, 
If you're interested, brochures will be available soon. We're setting up the tour now. Uh, Bob Church, our business manager, is going to set aside a kind of a system. If you'd like to uh, get ready for that, you can um, start putting some money into it every month. And then by the time when it comes, you'll have the money saved up instead of, oh, how can I get the money for that? It's just too expensive. And I've got to tell you, I don't think airfares are ever going to go down. As long as I've ever known them, they've always gone up. They've never reversed. So it's not going to get any cheaper as the years go on, nor is it going to get any safer as the years go on. As long as I've been to Israel, there's always been some kind of a, a coup happening. And every time I've gone, literally, and it's been 15 or 16 times, people have said, don't go, don't go, it's dangerous. So uh, it's always dangerous. It's dangerous to live in America. Perhaps more dangerous. So if you're up to it, information will be available soon. We'll get brochures out to you. And you can see some of these areas that we've talked about. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful that by your grace we've made it through the book of Exodus. And we thank you for the lessons that this book has held. You have given us this book for our edification and for even New Testament believers to understand and appreciate what we have in Christ. That we don't need to go through human priests anymore or make animal sacrifices anymore. But we have a great high priest who's entered into heaven itself, presented his own blood, and a new covenant has been established. A covenant based once and for all upon the blood of your Son. What an awesome plan you've had. What an awesome privilege we enjoy. Lord, we want to make you the center of our life. We want our life to revolve around you and your will rather than having you revolve around us or be just added to our lives as another commodity. Become, Lord, the very center, the very Lord of our lives. And I pray, Father, for those who are here tonight who have not surrendered or submitted themselves to you. They have a religious background or bent, or they believe sort of in God, but they don't know you personally, that tonight would be a night of surrender, that they would enjoy your goodness and your grace. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand. Next week we begin the Gospel of Mark. So read, read the first couple chapters. You say, yeah, right. You'll probably make it through one chapter, if we're lucky. But read ahead anyway. Your homework is the first two chapters of the Gospel of Mark. It's a very rapid written book, rapidly written book. There's a lot of immediately's and uh, it, it's rapid in the way it's presented. So uh, we'll get a different kind of a gospel next week as we get the Gospel of Mark. Actually, uh, the information came from Peter, but it was written by John Mark. And we'll discuss that next time. Let's sing to the Lord. 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 Let's sing to the Lord.